It's Friday, November 18th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Attorney General Merrick Garland announcing there will be a special prosecutor to look into the dealings of Donald Trump. Now, this will buy time, credibility, and a certain amount of distance from criticism from Donald Trump and the Republic. No, it won't. They are going to slam him in either case. Garland didn't really need to appoint a special counsel. He did it as if he were acting in a normal world where the person he was investigating were a normal person who wouldn't charge deep state conspiracies, even if there were an arms or buildings length distance between Garland and this actual prosecutor. But Garland thinks he's doing everything by the book, by the numbers, doing the right thing. And Donald Trump can't really count the numbers, certainly not consecutively. But In the realm of investigations, there are a few in the offing, and I was reading about what the Republicans' agenda will be now that they control the House. And I have to say, when it went down the list of what they'd be looking into, I was trying to be very fair, and I said to myself, well, many of these things do bear looking into if there were, say, a fair interlocutor. For instance, the withdrawal in Afghanistan. That did not go well. The origins of the coronavirus. What did the pangolin really do? Inflation causes. I'd like to know. And the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, they're using the word crisis, a little bit of thumb on the scale. But, you know, given Jim Jordan and some of his ilk, a thumb is a minimal body part that we could worry about. But of course, when asked what the first investigation was going to be, Representative James Comer of Kentucky, who chairs the Oversight Committee, they will be subpoenaing Hunter Biden because of the laptop. The Oversight Committee will subpoena Hunter Biden, demand the Treasury Department turn over any suspicious bank records linked to the president's son. He wanted that from the Treasury Department last time. Now Treasury won't be able to reject his request. Very good. Comer told CBS last week that he believes Hunter Biden's overseas business affairs may have, quote, compromised the White House and therefore it's a national security concern. I am concerned. I think this could all affect national security. And let me be clear. I think Hunter Biden did some double dealing. I think he's dirty. I think it's very embarrassing for the White House. And I have not even come to a firm conclusion in advance of the facts if there was possibly any involvement from Joe Biden. But if they don't find proof of that, I am extremely worried about the atmospherics that will be generated in lieu of proof. So... This could be another Benghazi, which is not a reference to the actual events of Benghazi, a horrible calamity in Libya, more of the investigation into Benghazi, a horrible calamity within the House of Representatives. We have a second Benghazi to look forward to, and it's all in a Delaware laptop. On the show today, I spiel about what's in a name in the case of the 89th most popular boy's name, Quite a burden. But first, Gotham Makunta is a research fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School. He hosts a podcast called World Reimagined, and he's been on the show before. He's an expert in leadership and presidencies, and he's out with a new book called Picking Presidents. He proposes a method to assess if candidates will succeed or fail in the White House. He looks at the amount of seasoning they have, and he finds that sometimes over-seasoning is just as bad as under Gotham Makunda. Up next... 
So we just had a festival, the biennial festival of elections called the midterms, which means I think by now we've all focused on the next presidential election. And who knows by the time this airs, in fact, maybe you heard Donald Trump is running for president again. So this brings us to the question of picking a president. In fact, the sub-question of how to make the most consequential decision in the world. It's not just a question and a sub-question. That's literally the title and subtitle of my guest, Gotham Makunda's new book, Picking a President. He was on the show, Gotham was, four years ago after I discovered that he had been writing about leadership and about how Donald Trump fit into his idea of filtered and unfiltered leaders. And now he fleshes that idea out in this new book. Gotham, welcome back to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. We got to make sure it doesn't take four years for the next time. Yeah, well, maybe in the interceding years, we'll have different excellent leaders where this whole question loses its urgency. Prediction, will that happen? <laughs> we can only hope. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, right. So how does the idea of filtered differ from concepts like experienced or, you know, having the backing of much of the populace? What constitutes filtering when it comes to a president? So let's split that out. Experience is required for filtration, but the fact that you are experienced doesn't make you filtered. So what I mean by that is what filtration is, is evaluation. It's a process that where people look at you and get to know over the course of years, maybe even decades, everything there is to know about you. And, and in that process, they say, is this someone we could want as president of the United States or CEO or whatever? And if they do, then they promote you and eventually you get the top job. And when you say people, you mean insiders, you mean- That's right. Primarily insiders, elites, yeah. because those are the people- The party who, decides, yeah. Mom. Yeah. They're the people who have the close personal contact, right? I mean- I've never met Joe Biden. I know what he's like on TV. I don't know what he's like in real life. You know, but maybe you do, Mike, but no idea. So, and he's same like with that, by the way. <laughs> same with every president of the United States. I've, uh, so it's, it's got to be it, that a big chunk of this is the elite game. But suppose you are the vice president and you're incredibly experienced and you've done everything. And then the president dies and you become the president of the United States. That's not filtration because let's take a look at Theodore Roosevelt who was the vice president. He was very, very young, but he was vice president. He had already been governor of New York, New York assemblyman, civil rights, I mean, civil service commissioner, police commissioner, assistant secretary of the Navy, right? He had a lot of experience. What you're saying is filtration isn't resume. No, it's not. Great resume. Great resume, but he was vice president because the Republican party wanted to get rid of him because he was a reformer and they didn't like him cracking down on corruption and all that sort of stuff. And so they said, you know, where can we put him where he will be totally neutered? Oh, yes, the vice presidency. Yes, this was an era when vice presidency was the warm bucket of spit or piss uh, conception. Yeah. Very much so. And then he became president when McKinley was assassinated. And, you know, suddenly this person who was everything they hated had the power that they had done everything to deny him. So that is experience, but not filtration. So TR, great example of an unfiltered president, did a great job, bang up job. Historians always rank him top 10, maybe even top five. But give me the opposite and the obverse. A totally unfiltered president was a failure. Andrew Johnson is my example. I, I would pick him as the most, as the worst president in terms of impact, the one who did the most harm to the country. And so Andrew Johnson is president because he was Lincoln's vice president, Lincoln's assassinated. And he's Lincoln's vice president because he was the only Southern senator who did not leave the Senate when his state state seceded, right? And we should give him credit for that, right? You know, good for him for doing that. Yeah. But then when he becomes president, the problem arises. So first is he is an incredible alcoholic. And I mean, 
at the level where he was embarrassingly drunk at his own inauguration. So he becomes president. And Johnson had grown up really dirt poor in the South, right? And again, you know, just was incredible, incredibly inferior, inferior to the planter class who had led secession. And that's why he had stayed with the Union. But once he becomes president, they flatter him, essentially. And he quickly decides that the black, you know, freed blacks in the South were in a conspiracy to oppress poor whites. And he makes it his goal to restore the social structure of the South as it was before the war. Where, you know, and so to bring back, to bring back Jim Crow, to bring, to create segregation, all of this, you know, the, so we forget that civil rights in the United States were vastly more advanced in 1867 than they were in 1957. At the end of the Civil War, the South had been so completely crushed by the conflict that they were ready to accept civil rights for their, for black citizens. And Andrew Johnson, literally him gave them the hope that they could win the peace even though they had lost the war and inspired a hundred years of bitter, of bitter resistance to equal rights. Without Johnson, it would not have happened. Right. So there is a, in Teddy Roosevelt and in Andrew Johnson, unfiltered success, unfiltered failure. We could point to a very, very filtered failure in James Buchanan, same era as the Johnson era, a precursor to it. Give me a filtered, this is the interesting thing I found. Give me a very filtered runaway success. I think Harry Truman is probably our best bet on that one. So Truman was a vice president who became president, you know, the death of the president. So normally you'd say that's unfiltered. But the Democratic Party elites knew that FDR was going to die, right? They knew just how bad his health was. They knew there was no way he was going to make it through his fourth term. And so they picked Truman knowing they were picking not the next vice president, but the next president. And we remember Truman as a failed haberdasher from Missouri, right? That's the sort of the stereotype, which he carefully cultivated being an incredibly gifted politician. But actually, in a poll of journalists during the Second World War, they asked with you know Franklin Roosevelt and George Marshall excluded, who contributed the most to American the American war effort? And Harry Truman was the winner because of his extraordinary performance as a senator where he chaired a bipartisan committee that investigated waste and fraud in the war effort and saved the United States billions of dollars and thousands of lives. But as I was thinking about, or as I was perusing the book and looking at the great triumphs of filtration, it doesn't correlate. The lesson is not just go filtered because a lot of filtration doesn't necessarily correlate to greatness. Joe Biden's the most filtered president. He's not doing so well right now. Go down the list of the filtered. Buchanan, Ford, John Adams, Lyndon Johnson. I haven't gotten to anyone who won re-election yet. Then you have Madison, Jefferson, McKinley. History does not smile upon him, although he accomplished things in his lifetime. Nixon, maybe the same thing, did win re-election, not regarded well. Monroe, Van Buren, Quincy Adams, Hoover. That's not that's not the top 10 of presidents. Your book is not saying pick a filtered president, no, people. It's saying you should be biased in that direction. That's the argument, right? So the particulars is, and the reason you should be biased in that direction is because, you know, we're all unhappy with the U.S. government right now. Everybody hates how it's performed, right? Like everybody's unhappy. Everybody in both parties thinks things are a disaster. But the actual thing is the United States is the wealthiest, most powerful society in human history. That's just objectively true. There's never been anything like the U.S. And, you know, the per capita income of the United States is the only countries that have higher per capita incomes in the United States are oil states. That's what it takes to be richer than us. You have to have oil. And so that is a huge amount of assets that you don't want to throw away lightly. So when you are trying to turn around Apple from risk, rescued from bankruptcy, you need the unfiltered Steve Jobs because he's the only guy who can pull that rabbit out of a hat. 
But when you got Apple as a titan of global commerce and you have to replace Steve Jobs, you don't replace him with another Steve Jobs. You replace him with Tim Cook, who is filtered and can take Apple, you know, is, has, is handed a really great hand and plays it so well that he makes Apple a multi-trillion dollar company. Yes, the steady hand on the till. But I guess the problem is that the, the shareholders of Apple will have a fairly reliable signal as to the status of their holdings, which is the stock price and the fact that it is the biggest market cap of all the companies. The shareholders of America, the voters of the United States, do not always have an accurate assessment of how much stock to put in the status quo. So the things you said, I mean, all of our nuclear capacity, oil capacity, the fact that debt is denominated in our currency, it would seem to permanently argue don't take big risks. But the electorate gets so upset, maybe because they're humans, maybe because we're neoliberals, you and I, or something like that, right? We don't understand their angst. But they get very upset and they perceive our company not to be Apple of 2018, but Apple of 2002. Yeah. And um, what I would say there is, you know, I mean, look, there are a lot of things going on in the United States where the appropriate response is anger. Um, and I would root m much of the discontent that you're describing, and which I share absolutely, uh, in the 2008 financial crisis and the response to it. And the fact that we never, you know, both never punished the people who caused it and really never fixed the damage that was done in many ways. So we did better than other countries, but better than other countries is a pretty low bar. So you're right. And that's why the burden falls very heavily on the parties. Right? You cannot win the nomination without capturing that. You cannot win the election. You cannot become president of the United States without capturing the nomination of a major party. And if you are a party elite and you have all the wealth and power that's implied by being a party elite, what I say is, you know, like Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility. You've got a responsibility. And your responsibility is to make sure that anyone who gets the party nomination is capable of doing the job. At this point, Pete Buttigieg filtered. So I would say no. He was a mayor, and now he's uh, and now he's been a cabinet secretary for about two years. So by if, even if you want to give him credit for his term in ma uh, term as mayor, and he wasn't mayor of a very big the big city, I would say not yet. But for an unfiltered candidate, he's a good bet, right? If, because sometimes you want an unfiltered candidate, and for an unfiltered candidate, I say right there are a bunch of characteristics that you should look at, right? Some of them are things that make sense. In, in, you know, what, what Dean Simonson, the great psychologist, calls intellectual brilliance. Well, Pete Buttigieg, whatever you think of him, he's a smart guy, right? And he's lots seems, of languages. He's, yeah. Lots of languages. Seems incredibly thoughtful, right? Like, I mean, there's something to be said. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, and the second one I'd layer on top of that is Pete Buttigieg is gay, right? We all know that. And it is harder to get to the top of American politics if you're gay. It just is, right? And I mean, the evidence for that is. No one's been as close to the, no, you know, no person who's publicly gay has been as close to the presidency as Pete Buttigieg. And so, but if you are president, being gay is not going to make you a worse president. It makes it harder to get the job. It doesn't make it harder to do the job. And so the way I think about that is you should think about someone running a hundred yard dash. If they can win the hundred yard dash with a weighted vest, think about how fast they would be when they took it off. So someone like Pete Buttigieg or Barack Obama, another example right, is someone who was running the political race wearing a weighted vest, and they were still able to keep up with the, with the lead runners. That should give you a lot of credit, a lot of faith in their underlying capabilities. So one thought that occurred to me is if you look at the non-Donald Trump um, 
slate of Republican candidates, they're actually filtered. They're not unfiltered. Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, two-term governor, Greg Abbott, there's a guy without unearned advantages. You're running a hundred-yard dash with a backpack. I mean, this is men, a wheelchair who's overcome quite a lot. Um, at least on your filtered versus unfiltered analysis, not much cause for concern among them. Am I right? Well, the on filtered score, they do pretty well. Um, I would say the exception would be Ted Cruz, because part of being filtered is not just that people know you really well, but they have to like what they see. And mm-hmm. so in 2016, when it came down oh, to the, a elites, con- the, the, right, elites, the elites, the elites who confer yeah. status upon right. you. Yeah. When to. it came to a contest between Ted Cruz and, and Donald Trump, who they clearly you not know, like the Republican Party elites clearly hated Donald Trump and they still preferred him to Tom to Ted Cruz, which you know says something about Ted Cruz. Um, so the problem here what I'd say is if you want to make the argument for why a filtered Republican would be pretty dangerous is to go back to James Buchanan, right? Who up until Joe Biden was the most filtered person ever elected president and was a disaster. And you have to ask what happened there. And what happened was the, the, the way the party systems had set up at that point was you could not get the democratic party nomination without the support of the South. It was not mathematically possible. And what that meant was that the demands of Southern interests were catered to by people who wanted to be president. And those demands kept escalating. So that by the end of the process, the South had shifted, you know, in Jefferson's day where Jefferson kept slaves, but at least felt bad about it. And I'm not, I'm not using saying that's not an excuse, right? I'm not saying it made it okay, but at least he felt bad about it, right? At least he knew it was wrong to by the 1850s and what actually called the pro-slavery movement where Southerners said the problem was that the North didn't have slaves. And you guys should be ashamed that you don't have slaves because slavery is better. And so Buchanan, the doe face, as you said earlier, um, Buchanan spent his entire career giving the South everything that he wanted, everything that the South wanted, right? There was no restraint, no moderation. And when he became president with the support of the South, he gave the South everything that they wanted. He interfered in Dred Scott, right? And so what happens is if a single concentrated interest group captures control of the nomination process, they can, demands can escalate over and over time until the system breaks, right? Where where filtered candidates are the worst case scenario because they are chosen for failure. Right. So what you're saying is drawing upon this historical example that these are filtered candidates, but what they're filtering out are the good things. What they're selecting for is inherently broken. It's as if we had a water filtration system which said, we need at least 0.0004 ounces of mercury and lead in every cup of water. That's what's going on with them. That's certainly my concern. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I do come back to your Apple analogy or the interplay between filtering and what the voters want. It is not your contention that sometimes the voters want big change and they're necessarily wrong, right? Sometimes big change is warranted, like uh, when it came to slavery pre-Civil War. That's right. Um, And sometimes the voters want, sometimes, right, the system does incorporate the inputs of voters. Sometimes big change will be a product of someone who is elected by the system, right? So, um, so, you know, Harry Truman did, you know, in foreign policy, created NATO, the Marshall Plan, like those are huge changes from the U.S.'s pre-war stance. That was, a, he was a system product because that is what the system wanted. My, the argument for filtration is not a, is not an argument for stasis. It's an argument for competence. The name of the book is Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. Gotham Makunda is the author. Thanks so much. Thank you.
And now the spiel. Yes, I am fascinated by the travails of beshorted Bahamian Samuel Bankman Freed, man who made billions in a currency called crypto, which is now hard to figure out how he lost it. Who would have guessed? But the blast radius of the SBF takedown includes the field of effective altruism. Have you heard about the effective altruists? I'm a little salty against the effective altruists because I am heading up a counter movement. The ineffective altruists, we are funded by one-ply toilet paper, drinking water for hiccups, and strongly worded letters to the editor. Effective altruists. Isn't every other type of altruist like, and what are the implications of what I'm doing over here? For years, a couple years, the Gates Foundation must have been like, you know, we're kind of effective too. Now they're like, actually, we're still in existence. Effective altruists. I had scheduled to appear on the show William McCaskill. He is the main beneficiary of SBF's largesse, or was. He wrote a book called What We Owe the Future. And if you pre-order it on Amazon, the answer to that question was $32. I met McCaskill at a book party. He seemed nice, definitely young, definitely English. I don't know if he was dashing. He was on the cover of Time Magazine that week. So that creates a certain allure that would uh, lead one to find him dashing. But now he is just apologetic and wondering where his next mosquito net is coming from. The effective altruists. Effective altruism. I don't know. I'm a little too suspicious. I've read the book. I know their philosophy. It's basically uh, do the most but take into account cost-benefit analysis. Seems certainly plausible. If you had a guy who was giving you millions to billions of dollars and you had to call yourself an effective altruist to get it, I certainly would do that. I think that's an ethical good. I hope these altruists would say so. But you know, effective altruist is, it's really only a name. And you know what else is a name? Well, according to babycenter.com, which culls the IRS data, Emily's a name, Olivia's a name, Liam's a name. These are some of the more popular names of girls and boys. Olivia won for girls, Liam won for boys. Emily was actually a faller, fell a few spots. Mateo jumping up from 11 to 5, although the new Mateos are just zero years old, so not doing much jumping. Pushing Lucas down. Mateo, don't push Lucas down. Time out, Mateo. Pushing Lucas down to the sixth spot. It is interesting to see the trends which reflect certain long-standing traditions, like there's always much more movement among girls' names than boys' names and traditional boys' names like William and James and William James. Those always are popular where the girls' names, like women's fashion, go up and down a little bit. Checking in on state capitals, Lincoln, boys' name, 40th most popular name, Jackson, spelled like the city, 23rd, Madison, also in the top 30, but was down 14 spots, Jackson with an X, that is also so in the top 100, Bismarck with a Z or an S, not charted. The name that I was most taken by or surprised with was a high riser in this year's poll, rising to number 86 among boys, the baby's name, and one day adult man's name, Legend. We're naming our babies Legend. This seems I guess, optimistic? Sounds like it's bestowing upon the lad a whiff of the heroic, but really in practical terms, it's going to be more like, who took the remote? Legend, legend's hitting me, mom. Legend called me a baby. I'm not a baby, you are legend. 
Uh, this guy's a legend in his time. I don't know, maybe he was named after all these legends were named after their parents loving playing League of Legends or Legend of Zelda. Zelda, by the way, 630th most popular girl's name. Maybe, I think I'm getting the demographics wrong of a parent, but maybe they watched The Legend of Billie Jean. Billy, 816th most popular girl's name, Jean, 2086th, boys named Billy, 888, Jean, G-E-N-E, Jean, 2322, more popular name that starts with Jean or contains Jean is, oh no, not Eugene, Genesis, 132, that's all? They're in too deep. Legend is a very big name to grow into. If you get there, or if you're close, I think maybe having the name Legend can help you get over the final hump. Burt Bylevin, a good major league pitcher, after he retired, was close to getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame. 14 ballots in a row. It almost got close, got a little closer, but you only get 15 ballots. And then on the last ballot, the last chance, he made it in. I have to believe that if his name were legend by Levin, same stats, same curveball, he'd have been in on ballot two or three. But for everyone else, it is a lot to live up to. Hey, I'm all for parents having big aspirations for their kids. But to put that on a child, you know, I think of the case of the former player for the Buffalo Bills named Lawyer Malloy. Guy had a great career, made millions in the NFL. I do and did always wonder if his parents were a little disappointed. You know, we wanted a lawyer. Or maybe he has a brother named Inside Linebacker Malloy who made partner in a white-shoed law firm, and he too felt a little disappointed. Like I say, you don't want to dictate a kid's destiny when you give him or her name. Destiny, girl's name number 385, up 92 slots from last year. Lawyer Malloy, by the way, was arrested for a DUI in 2008. I know the cop who issued the citation must have gotten a chuckle out of that circumstance. That man's name, Officer Breathalyzer O'Malley. But legends, we can't all be legends. Though, according to the Social Security Administration, 7,000 little babies are in fact legend. And they are babies. Little legends. Living legends. Tiny legends. You're going to hear a jimboreeze throughout the land. Legend. Did you make a stinky? Does Legend have to change his diaper? I think Legend needs a little nap and maybe some Go-Gurt. He can share it with Legacy. Yeah, that is the most popular sibling name for a boy named Legend. I guess you want your kid to succeed, and Legacies do have an easier time getting into college. Look, in 50 years, all Legends will be doing the 2072 version of the podcast, which... We'll still be called a podcast, but the pod will refer to the virtual reality oxygen capsules that mankind can only leave for 12 minutes a day. And the legends will be scoffing at all the old Mikes and Michaels and Michelles and names like Jackson with an X, which will seem so passe. Passe will be name number 432 on the 2072 baby name list. Because fashions change, name trends change, but the legends live on at least in their own and probably their parents' minds. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Gist's assistant producer and possessor of the 600th most popular boy's name. Joel Patterson, senior producer, name number 228 on the boy's list. Michelle... Number 251, girl's name, Michelle Pesca, is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>